listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. If you have your scripture notebook going through the Gospel of Luke from last week, you can follow along at the bottom of page 24. If you do not have one and you would like one, you can get one at the back of the sanctuary at the end of service. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. How would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be uh, just in your presence. As Lamentations 3, uh, 25 says, 22, because the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I pray at the end of this sermon and the service that we will be able to say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I put my hope in him. Even now, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Just look for a moment at our daily routines. In general, we are very busy people. We have so much to accomplish, so many calls to make and appointments to fill. And for many of us, there's seldom a moment in our day where we don't know what to do. We move through life distracted, and don't take time to consider if the things that we are doing are really worth doing. And underneath this way of life for some is a compulsion that is fueled by a fear of failure, a fear of getting it wrong. And as a result, we live not motivated by love of, of God and others, but we live motivated by a fabricated false self who wants to be seen as adequate enough, who wants to be seen as good enough. And this fabricated version of ourselves is in need of an ongoing and increasing amount of affirmation. Who am I, we wonder? As one theologian noted, most people are led by social compulsions, constantly asking the question, am I the one who is liked, praised, admired, disliked, hated, or despised? How am I as a business person, as a mom or dad, as a pastor perceived by my world? 
If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must make more money. If being popular proves my importance, then by all means, I have to be known. And these social compulsions can lead to more work, more money, more friends in a way that is unhelpful and unhealthy. It can also lead to a psychological burnout and self-rejection. The I must and the I oughts eventually drown out the voice of God, which tells us that we are loved perfectly in Christ. As a result of the social compulsion that leads to self-rejection, that leads to shame because we are not living within the boundaries that the Lord has given us, but pressing those boundaries in order to prove ourselves, we we end up in spiritual apathy and self-rejection. And I'm not talking about clinical depression, but some of us, we end up constantly in states of depression because we want to be special. We've got to be special. Henry Nowen says this, Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. And that's what I want to talk about today is this identity of the beloved and, and how we can be in tune with the God who created the universe and who saved us by grace in such a way that his voice cuts through the voices that are constantly telling us that we are not enough, that we need to be more in order to truly be loved, that cuts through this voice that makes us feel like a perpetual failure. And today I hope that the Spirit would allow you to see that at the core of your existence in Christ Jesus is the identity of the beloved. So the question is, is for you, is, is there a better way? Is there a better way to help you and me to not live with this constant compulsion to keep up in order to avoid failure? Is there a better way of being in the world that, that allows this voice of self-rejection maybe to not be completely muted because that may not happen on this side of heaven, but, but that allows this voice of shame and self-rejection to no longer be in a driver's seat? Today, I believe that there is a better way and that this text helps us to, to move past this social compulsion that is complicated because of our battle with the flesh, with Satan and the world. And I believe that God is inviting us to embrace his immeasurable love and affirmation for us in Christ in such a way that it allows us to be shaped by his values and his rhythms 
from a place of being loved. Last week, we traveled to the desert and we listened to John the Baptist preach a sermon of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And as he preached the sermon of repentance for a forgiven of sin, we see that John preached boldly. And part of the reason I think that John was able to preach so boldly was because he took a, a, counter, uh, a countercultural way of living. Rather than living in the rushness of the Roman Empire, rather than following the, the ways of the religious establishment, which was saying that your identity is found in what you do, not in who you belong to, John found himself in the wilderness living there. And it is in the wilderness that God shaped him. It is in the wilderness that God's love formed his message, formed his ministry. And he was a, a true prophet, able to preach truth to power, able to call people to repentance because his fixation was not fitting in. His fixation was fulfilling his call in God. For some of us, God is inviting us to go back to the wilderness, to start our day in silence, to, to contemplate who God is and who we are and who as a result of Christ, he is making us to become so that we are not tethered to the latest opinion of someone else or the latest fad or the voice that we are trying to silence in our head. John was a prophet. He wasn't prophet lying like the folk we see on television and Instagram who always are prophesizing but always have the same word. This year is your year. Who always has something positive to say. Never a word of confrontation. John came with the word of confrontation. And we see in chapter 3, verse 20, that it, it lends up with him being imprisoned and locked up. And eventually we're going to see in the gospel of Luke is going to lead to him being beheaded. If a person says they had a word, have a word for the Lord and that they are a prophet and the only thing that they ever say is a, a positive word to you, is a, a promise that everything is going to uh, go your way and that every year is your year, they have not been to the wilderness. So we pick up in verse 21, two short verses. And we see in verse 21 that Jesus is going to be baptized. But what's interesting about this verse and about the baptism of Jesus is that John the Baptist is not mentioned here. When we look at other synoptic gospels, it's clear that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, but Luke doesn't do that. And I re believe the reason that Luke does not focus on John being the one to baptize Jesus is because Luke, remember, throughout this story has been giving honor to John, but showing how Jesus is greater than John. And it's possible that Luke just wants all the attention on Jesus in this moment. And he says, listen, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Who are all the people? In the verse before, in the chapter before, we see that John is preaching a message of repentance to those who are in the wilderness. And that includes a message to tax collectors and to soldiers, both professions who uh, by Jewish standards are pro professions of shame because these people were oppressing 
God's people. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, steps into those baptismal waters. And the question is, is Jesus stepping into those waters, stepping into those waters because he is a a sinner or he has been a sinner up until this point? Why in the world would Jesus be baptized? Is the Bible contradicting itself? And the answer is, is no. Jesus steps into these baptismal waters for two reasons. One, we find in Matthew. In Matthew's version of Jesus' baptism, we see that a conversation is going to happen between Jesus and John. John is going to see Jesus in line to be baptized, and he's going to say, yo, I'm not worthy like to tie up your, your, your shoestrings of your sandals, let alone to, to baptize you. And Jesus says, suffer it to be so. And why does he say suffer it to be so? He says, because the Son of Man has to fulfill all righteousness. That means that he has come to perfectly keep the law. He has come to perfectly be the pattern that God's people need in order for when they look to him by faith that they would be saved. But the second reason that we see that Jesus steps into this baptism water is to identify with humanity. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus steps into these baptism waters, not as one who has sinned, but as the one who has come to identify with sinners so that they can be forgiven and enter into the kingdom of God. What humility that the God of this universe who is sinless and perfect and true and good and beautiful in every way, would stand and wait in line to be baptized with those who are broken, deprived, and sinners. And this act of him stepping into these baptismal waters is a foreshadowing of his ultimate identification with us when he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that we in Christ might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knows what it is to experience humanity. He also knows what it is to experience inhumanity. Jesus knows what it what it is to stand in line and wait. And he sees you this morning standing in line and waiting. Waiting for peace. Waiting for for joy. Waiting for hope. Waiting for healing, waiting, waiting for a voice from heaven to to speak through your darkness, your confusion, your shame, your guilt, your not enoughness. And he waits in those waters and he goes underneath knowing that your healing will come 
Not from within, but from without, from above, that your healing will come as you go down into those baptismal waters and are raised to life with him. That your healing came not just through the empty tomb, but that it ultimately will come through him cracking open the heavens and returning again with all power. Can you wait in the wilderness? The key to waiting in the wilderness is looking at Jesus who waits for you and who waits with you. And listen, somebody needs to hear this. He is not this morning waiting on you. He is waiting with you. You are not in that counselor's office sitting and waiting on that door to open alone. He is right beside you. He sees you. He knows you. He formed you. He loves you. But I love what this little detail says here right after Jesus baptized. It says, that as he is baptized, he comes out of those waters and he is praying. That seems like such a, a random detail. But it's a detail that we're going to see all throughout the book of Luke. Jesus' prayer life, Luke is fascinated with it. Throughout the book of Luke, we see that Jesus is going to go to deserted places regularly and start his day in prayer. Before most major decisions, Jesus, Luke is going to mention the fact that Jesus prayed. In chapter 6, Jesus is going to call 12 disciples to be his apostles, and we see that he is going to stay up all night in prayer. And he doesn't just pray in big moments. He prays in what seems to be small moments. Sometimes he's in the middle of telling a parable or or teaching a story, and he just stops and, and talks to his heavenly father. And, and the text doesn't say what he prays for. It doesn't say exactly why he is praying. But the text does say that as he is praying, that the heavens open up. The heavens open up. This isn't Ezekiel chapter 1 where the heavens open up through a vision. Neither is this revelation where the heavens open up to John in a vision. No, this actually happened. God tore open heaven as one of the synoptic gospels says. And he opened heaven. By the way, this is one or two times in the scripture that we see the literal opening of heaven. The other time is on the transfiguration where Jesus is met by Moses and Elijah, where the disciples fall asleep while Jesus is having this sanctified, holy conversation with these two prophets. And they are encouraging him as he turns his face to Jerusalem to go and to die on the cross. God knows when to open the heavens. Heavens don't always open when we pray, but my goodness, when he needs to get our attention, he knows how to get our attention. And the question is, is is why now? Why does the heavens open now? And the answer is, is that God is doing a significant and a new work at the moment of Jesus's baptism. Jesus is getting ready to to start his earthly ministry. That's what we read in in verses 23 through, through 38. It says in verse 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. 
which is Luke's way of saying, hey, Jesus came through Mary and was Joseph's son by love, but not biologically. And this Jesus has come and he gives this genealogy, starting with Joseph, going all the way back to Adam. That's how he closes genealogy. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Unlike Matthew, he doesn't do an artistic genealogy. It's actually quite different than Matthew's. But like Matthew, he is making a theological point with this genealogy. And perhaps the main theological point that he is making with this genealogy is that even though Jesus is the son of God and and he is divine, he also is fully human. And his humanity dates all the way back to Adam. But this is what Luke is trying to get us to see in this chapter and in the next. That Jesus is the new and better Adam. Where Adam fell short and sinned because of temptation and because he stopped listening to the voice of God and listened to the voice of Satan. And in compulsion, him and Eve sinned against God, though their circumstances was in a garden and perfect. Jesus, though he will be next week, we'll see in the wilderness in a situation where he has been tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, though he is alone, where Adam was with Eve, he would not fail. He would succeed. He will undo everything that the first Adam corrupted. So Luke says that the heaven opens and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in a physical appearance like a dove. We know that the Holy Spirit is a spirit and he does not have a body like man. But here, the Holy Spirit wraps himself into a physical appearance that mimics a dove. Why a dove? Well, we know that throughout the scripture, a dove represents peace, but a dove also represents new beginnings. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see that in the, the creation that the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was empty and void without form. And the Bible says that, that, that there was waters and, and depths of waters, but the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. The word that we have there for hover is, the, is also found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Nowhere else in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is writing to Israel while they are in the wilderness. And he talks about God being like a, an eagle who hovers over her nest, who protects it, who, who watches it, who, who keeps it, who empowers them to go from their old way of being, which is slaves in Egypt, to a new reality as the children of God who are on their way to the promised land. Jesus here sees the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, which represents new beginning. It was a dove that was released from Noah's ark after the storm. And God is saying, I'm doing a new thing. And this new thing doesn't depend on Adam. Adam couldn't keep it. This new thing doesn't depend on Noah. Noah enjoyed 
has drank a little too much and he failed. This new thing doesn't depend on Samuel. It won't depend on David. It won't, it won't depend on Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. This new thing that he is doing is going to be centered on his perfect son. The Messiah, not just of the Jewish people, but the Messiah of all humanity. The one who came not just from Abraham, but the one who came from Adam. Jesus here sees the Holy Spirit descending in physical appearance like a dove. And suddenly the Bible says a voice came from heaven. You are my Beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With, with you I am well pleased. Now, now notice this happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not not just in the middle of his ministry. This happens at the very beginning of his ministry, before he heals a leper, before he turns water into wine, before he opens the, uh, the, the eyesight of the blind, before he unclogs death ears. This, this happens before he defeats Satan in the wilderness. And what does this teach us about God? This teaches us that that those who are in Christ, that those who are sons and daughters of God are loved by God before they ever do anything for God. That God's love of us is not dependent upon our works nor is it dependent upon our merits. Isaiah said our righteousness before God is like a a filthy rag. That's our good works, our good deeds. That's our our tithes. That's our our singing. That's our our justice ministry. That's, That's all these things. They are as filthy rags before God. Outside of the sacrifice and the merit of Christ. We are saved by works, but we're just not saved by our works. We're saved by his works. I love this picture of this voice coming from heaven and and declaring the belovedness of, of God's son who has always been God. We see in this text this Trinitarian beauty. We see the presence of the Father, we see the presence of the Son, and we see the presence of the Holy Spirit. If, if someone tries to teach you uh, that, that the Trinity does not exist in the Scripture, even though the Word may not, this tri-unity, this three-in-oneness, you could take them to this passage and a whole lot of other passages, and you could show them that God is not one person who shows up in three different modes. God is one God in three persons. Simultaneously, they are all present. Affirmation is so important. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that as believers, as the day is drawing near, that we ought to encourage one another in the Lord daily. Affirmation is so important. A coach's voice can build you up or it can tear you down. 
The speech of a, a parent, the habitual speech of a parent can, can shape us in ways that takes years to undo. And I just want to pause real quick and just say, fathers, affirm your children. Look at your children, no matter the season of life that they are in, and, and make sure you slow down to, to lap them. As one person said, to do what God the Father does here for Jesus, his perfect son, to, to remind them that they are loved, that you approve of them, and that you are proud of them. But also today, I want you to see that this promise and this declaration that God makes over Jesus is God's daily decoration to you in Christ Jesus. Some of our social compulsions, some of our, all of our anxiety, all of our self-rejection is, is rooted not just in guilt, I have done wrong, but in shame, I am wrong. Something is inherently wrong with me. And the only thing that can cut through that Voice is, is understanding what it means to be in union with Christ. That when, when you died and rose in Christ, you were united with him. And Ephesians says that you are seated in heavenly places with him. That everything that is true, good, and beautiful about Jesus now is true, good, and beautiful about you because you have been justified. You have been declared righteous. It is a legal declaration on your worst day and in your worst moments. You are clothed with Christ, his blood. It reaches not just to the highest mountains, not to the moments of, of celebration, but it reaches to the lowest of, of valleys, those, those moments that make you sick when you think about it. His blood covers you, and in Christ Jesus, God looks at you and says, you belong to me. I love you, and I am here for you. And it is that grace that not only saves us, but it's that grace that sanctifies us, and it's that grace that that will safely bring us home. And what's keeping you from, from living in that grace? For some of us, it's just pride. Functionally, we live as if we don't need anyone, including Jesus. And we forget that Jesus absolutely had to die for us. For some of us, it's another form of pride, which is self-pity. We waddle in our self-pity because at the end of the day, we want to be more special than we already are. And God is inviting you to find your identity, not from the inside, but from the outside, to find your identity in something that is absolutely objective, and that is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that no matter how you self-identify or feel on the inside, that you, you are immeasurably, perfectly, and eternally loved 
by God and that he at every moment of your day hovers over you with comfort and compassion. And for some of us, that's hard for us to believe because we are suffering and that suffering mutes out the voice of God. It's hard to believe that God loves me. It's hard to believe that I am his beloved when it seems like I'm constantly getting the short end of the stick. You don't understand my trauma. You don't understand my my sin. You don't understand my story. And yet, God is there. Jesus is there, patient and humble. Saying, I stepped into those baptismal waters. I walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem. I lived with some family system drama as I was born by the world standards to an unwed mother. I know what grief is like as I lost my father at a young age. I was betrayed by my best friend, though I was perfect. People attempted to stone me regularly just for preaching truth and beauty and goodness. I went down to Via Dolorosa. I was stripped naked in front of my mother. I was hung high and stretched wide and dropped low, beat and treated inhumanely, though I did nothing wrong. I may not, I may not know your story. I may not be able to identify with you, but there is one who does. And even now, as you question his love, he is not standing over you, shaming you. He's not standing over you, looking at you with condescension. In fact, he's not 50 feet ahead of you, nor is he behind you. He is right beside you. I'll do you one better. He is inside you saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'll give you a peace that passeth all understanding. Though you find yourself right in that fiery furnace, hot and burning, I will be with you. I will protect you. I'll close the the mouth of a lion. I'll give you the ability to maneuver the, the sphere of Saul. And lo and behold, even if you die for not my name's sake, I'll give you treasures that go beyond this world. So two quick applications. One is if you are here and you do not know Jesus, my invitation is for you to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Stop trusting in yourself. Your own righteousness will not make you right with God. There is nothing that you can do to impress God. Your good works aren't good enough outside of Christ. Trust in Jesus. Turn from a life committed to yourself and committed to your own philosophy and your own way of thinking and trust that God has spoken. Look to the baptismal waters of Jesus. Look to the cross of Jesus. Look to the empty tomb of Jesus and experience what it's like to be God's beloved. 
And two, if you're here today and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, but you have never been baptized, be baptized. There was a song that came out when I was a little boy and uh, all my little girlfriends, not girlfriends, girlfriends, was singing it in, in school. And it was by a Christian group called Destiny's Child. I'm, I'm joking. It's not a Christian group. Amen. All right. And uh, man, that song annoyed me, but it was good. It was, right. It was, can you say my name? Can you say my name? No, that wasn't it. Say my name. Say my name. There you go. I was like, man, that's the right song to a wrong beat. When no one is around you, say, baby, I love you. Why are you playing games? Say my name, say my name. I'm taking y'all back. Let me bring you back in, right? And she was like, hey, why are you acting shady? Every time we're not around and we talk on the phone, you all of a sudden, you can't say my name. You can't say you love me. Well, baptism is a declaration to God and everyone who is witnessing that I love Jesus. He is my Lord. And I'm going to say his name. I'm going to say his name when I'm in the wilderness or I'm in a mountaintop. I'm going to say his name. Why? Because he has been good to me, better to me than I've been to myself. And someone here who has accepted Jesus as their Lord needs to say his name. In Acts chapter 8, we read these words. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. To be baptized, to declare Jesus is to believe in his good news about his kingdom. And it's to believe that he is who he said he is. Baptism is not only a declaration, but it's also a demonstration in Romans Chapter 6, we read, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus humbled himself to be submerged. That's what baptized means, to be submerged into water. So we must obey him and do the same. And then second is my invitation to us as a church, man, is to rely on the Holy Spirit through prayer. Many of us are living self-reliant lives and we're trying to live outside of God's desire and boundary for our life, which is bringing on a perpetual exhaustion spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And there are some seasons where, man, we, we have to push. There's some seasons where it's just grind and we have to grind. But even then, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain for you to rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Sometimes you go late to rest because it's the season but we do so not eating the bread of anxious toil. We do so because in this season we have to get it done, but we do so relying on God to build whatever he's called us to in that season. 
And one of the practices I think that God may be inviting you to is, is like you see in this text, Jesus is praying and it's for you to commune with God. And I want to encourage you to start your days in the morning, maybe this week, just reading over this verse. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and put it in your name. I am God's beloved child. Jamal, you are God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Take a moment, close your eyes, hold your hands out, breathe for 60 seconds in and out and just say, Lord, here I am. Holy Spirit, here I am. Guide my day, guide each moment of my day. Help me to be sensitive to you. I was sharing with our staff this week that I've been really practicing that this year. And some days, most days is rote and there's no opening of heaven. There's no thunder that comes down. There, there is a perpetual calmness that Philippians 4, uh, that he will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus and give you a peace that passeth understanding. I've experienced that more than ever this year by, by sitting down and by listening to the Lord. But some days it does feel like the heaven opens. One morning I was doing that and as I came into God's presence, just disheveled and anxious and, and, and weary just stopped and breathed and, and read over verse over and over and just waited on the Lord. And it felt like Jesus came and just kissed me on the top of my head. I opened my eyes. I thought somebody was in that room with me. Got emotional. And whether that was my imagination or not, God used it to remind me that he sees me and he loves me. Henry Nouwen says this about prayer. The real work of prayer is to become silent and listen to the voice that says good things about me. Maybe God's invitation to you this week is not just to talk. To take some deep breaths, to sit silently and to listen. And if a voice is coming to you that is bringing condemnation and shame, maybe it's not maybe, it's not the voice of the Lord. The Lord will bring conviction. It's not going to bring condemnation. Wait on him. And I promise that in due season, you will hear him saying good things about you. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.